Thank you, Ashton. And that is truth. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than in anything else. And I hope that's true for you because it is true, period. And I want to continue to welcome you to worship as has already been done this morning. My name is Eric and I get to pastor down here. And this morning I want to talk about what Ashton just read from Psalm 118 because it's one of the central thrusts and themes of your entire Bible, refuge in God. More specifically, more precisely, perhaps more practically, man dwelling with God. I don't know what you think about when you think about man dwelling with God. Candidly, we're, we're Westerners by culture. And so for many of us, when we think about man dwelling with God, really what our mind jumps to is sort of that time as yet in the future after death, when we die and we go someplace and then we finally dwell with God. And so maybe because you've been influenced by pop culture or media or cartoons, maybe you're thinking of man's dwelling with God as just sort of sitting awkwardly on this poofy cloud with a halo, and you're sometimes getting to play a harp on Thursdays, and you're generally bored for all eternity. Something like that. Like, oh, well, I guess this is just how it's going to be. I'm just going to die and go sit on a cloud and... <sighs> or maybe, maybe that's not what you think about when you think about God and man dwelling together. You're, you're still environmentally bound and uh, atmospherically struck, and so maybe you have sort of the more Roman idea, what they would call Elysium, or the Elysian fields, where it's basically this life, but it's so much better. All of the heartache, all of the heartbreak, all the disease, pain, death, suffering, animosity, and opposition is gone. It is you remixed to like 11. It's just better. All of those other people are finally not there, which is weird because you're not in theirs either. So I don't know how quiet that works. I guess there's plenty of room. Maybe that's your thought of, it'll just be this, better. I remember when Ronald Reagan died, and they were like, oh, he's off riding the range somewhere. And I thought, really? Where? where? Where is that exactly? And it's that Roman notion of it's just this life, but better. Or maybe you've got enough sort of scriptural splatter paint of the mind, and you think, well, it's supposed to be dazzling colors and, and bright, beautiful, harmonious choral sounds, and there are people who are walking very slowly, carrying something golden, and their hair is just long enough so as to cover the awkward bits so that they don't cause anyone to stumble, and they're always in slow motion, and it's like Thomas Kincaid and J.R.R. Tolkien had like some little, I don't know, maybe that's what you think about. As it turns out, of course, all of those are woefully incomplete and therefore incorrect. Because when we think about a dwelling between God and man, because of the sin that occurred in Genesis 3, all of us think way too little about God. The point of dwelling between God and man is not the dwelling. It's not the environmental, it's not the aesthetic, it's not the atmosphere, it's not the context. It's God himself. So what our Bibles have been trying to do for thousands and thousands of years are getting us to rethink our thinking. We call that repentance. To think not of environmentals and atmospherics and aesthetics, but to think of the one who will actually be there because of what he is, because of what he is like. 3,500 years ago in the book of Joshua, this was the problem and challenge presented to the covenant community, the messianic people of Israel. God is is. In fact, that's his name. Not only is he, he's also faithful, and he is with you. Don't you get it? You've seen him do all these things. Don't, don't, don't you see? 
He's with you. He's not merely trying to up your life to 11. He has been sovereignly stitching back together the gash that was created in fellowship between God and man. And so through countless narratives, through unimaginable iterations of stories and narratives individually and corporately, God has been stitching back the divide, the gash between himself and humankind. He has always, always, always been faithful. How will God's people respond? It's one of the saddest themes in all of the human experience is unrequited love. And yet, unabashedly, this God of heaven pursues a people who yawn at his approach. But our Bibles are calling us and compelling us to something magical, mysterious, and marvelous if we will but have eyes to see and ears to hear. As Ashley's already mentioned, we are wrapping up our study in the book of Joshua this morning, Lord willing. I say this at the, ever, at the conclusion of every sermon series. It's like they say in the aviation industry, the takeoff is optional, the landing is not. So we're going to pray to land this craft with all sorts of grace and conclude our study in the book of Joshua. And all semester in the fall and all semester thus far in the spring, our theme for the series has been that God is our salvation. That's what the name Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus, that's what it means. God is our salvation. It's been our series theme, and so our sermon title is Joshua because it's the end of his book, and that's our big idea for the morning as well. God is our salvation. Now, we have gone through a lot of real estate textually through the book of Joshua. Moses has died at the end of Deuteronomy 34. He's handed off leadership to Joshua. He's taken the children of Israel across the Jordan River. They built an altar at Gilgal. They took Jericho. They went and approached Ai prematurely. They stumbled. God graced them. They took it. Then they took all of the southern half of Canaan. Then they took all the northern half of Canaan. And then they gathered together. And God gave them by allotment all the different tribal assignments that they would inhabit the land, the habitat, where God and man would dwell together. That's Joshua. And then he gave them six cities of refuge. He gave them six cities, three on either side of the Jordan River, so that they could run if they had committed a crime and by accident they could run. He also gave them 48 Levitical cities where nobody in Israel would ever be farther than 10 miles from an expert in God's word. And that's a very good plan indeed. Now, since you've slept since last Sunday, you might have forgotten one of the things we discussed last week, and there's grace for that, but you kind of have to get a quick on-ramp and reminder of the end of Joshua 21. That's going to set the stage for the rest of what we talk about this morning in our time together. So Joshua 21, if you got your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Joshua 21 and verse 43. I mentioned this last week. One writer calls these three verses the jugular vein of the book of Joshua. It is the central hinge on which the entire narrative about God, by God, swings. It's these three verses. So they're a really big deal. Joshua 21, beginning at verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And in that one little sentence, you got the summary of the book of Joshua. Chapters 1 through 12, entrance of the land and the conquest of the land. There, he's done it. Also, chapters 13 through 21, you've got the apportionment, the allotment, the assignment of all the different territories to the tribes. There, he's done it. And that God promised to their fathers. You see, this covenant community, this messianic people was a part of something bigger than themselves in God. And it's important, it's requisite that we as individuals remember we are part of something much longer before and after us. 
One of the reasons we do what we do in confession and assurance and doxology and singing and the study of God's word is because we're a part of something that is now 2,000 years in the making as the body of Christ and thousands of years before that as the messianic community. He had done it just as he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession of it and they settled there. Verse 44, and the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So Joshua, or his scribe or secretary or editor, wants to hammer home again and again and again, God is faithful, God is faithful. See, it's right there in his job description. To not be faithful would be to un-God, God, and that's the one thing God cannot do, is be disengodded. He has to be faithful, down to the jot and tittle. God is faithful. How will Israel respond? It's one of the master themes of the book of Joshua. It's one of the master themes of the entire Bible. God is faithful. How will his people respond? Now, what we're going to get in the rest of the book of Joshua is three chapters, 22, 23, and 24, each of which is an iteration or an instance that tries to address that question. God is faithful. How will Israel respond? And we get a vignette in 22. God is faithful. How will his people respond? A vignette in 23. God is faithful. How will his people respond? Chapter 24. Some of you might remember, by way of introduction, a fairly decent movie. It wasn't awesome. It was good enough. Back in 1967. I know some of you were not even an idea in 1967. I get that. But in 1967, there was a movie starring a guy named Paul Newman. That's right, the salad dressing guy made movies way back when. The movie was called Cool Hand Luke, and Paul Newman plays a prisoner in Florida named Luke Jackson, who is in prison for cutting the heads off of parking meters. Some of you might remember. And Luke has a problem of always rebelling and bucking the system. He's always sort of subtly smarting off to the sadistic warden, always a bad idea. And in one particular occasion, Luke is on the chain gang. It's super hot outside. And the warden's just pulled him out of the sweat box as a punishment. And the warden says, hey, this is for your good. I'm doing this. One day, you will thank me for how good I have been to you. And Paul Newman's character, Luke, sort of smugly says, warden, I wish you'd stop being so good to me. And the sadistic warden beats him on the back of the head savagely, and he falls down on the ground, and the warden stands over him, and in a very iconic and familiar scene to anybody over 50, the warden famously says, what we've got here is, some of you can help me, a failure to communicate. That's right, you just outed yourself. Okay, Boomer, you did. It's okay. There's grace for that too. I know and love that scene as well. A failure to communicate. And it became sort of the expression of the age of the mid to late 20th century. What we've got here is a failure to communicate. God is faithful. Will Israel respond in faithfulness? And in the first vignette is chapter 22, and it's almost catastrophically wrecked because of a failure to communicate. Now, in the interest of time, I'm actually not going to read chapter 22. It's long. I highly encourage and exhort you to read it on your own time. There's plenty of text we're going to read later, I promise you. But this is one of those stories that was intended to be passed down generationally, orally, from dad to son, from mother to daughter, from grandfather to grandnephew, and so forth and so on. So we're going to tackle chapter 22 as the story that it is. It begins 
after all of the work has been done of conquest and allotment and the cities of refuge and the 48 Levitical cities, it begins at Shiloh. Shiloh is where the Ark of God is housed in the tabernacle that represents Messiah. And Joshua is there. He's 100 years old. And he's gathered all of the tribal chiefs and leaders and elders of Israel. He's gathered them all together. And he brings the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. They decided those tribes wanted to settle on the east side of the Jordan as they were taking laps in the wilderness. And they said, hey, we're ranchers, we're goat herders, we like this land. We know that on the west side of the Jordan, they're going to make all of that agriculture, but we need spaces for our flocks. And so they asked Moses, and Moses says, that was not the plan, but I'll go ask God. So he angrily walks into the tent of meeting, and God says, oh, okay, fine, they can stay with her, but, but, they have to fight for and support the other tribes when we go in and do the conquest. Moses comes out and says, hey, here's the deal. God has permitted it, but you have to fight for your brothers in the conquest of the land, in the habitat that is God's that he is giving you to dwell together. And those two and a half tribes say, we're totally in on that. And for seven years, they travel around for seven years, and they fight for the other nine and a half tribes for seven years. And at the end of it, Joshua gathers them all together at the tabernacle in Shiloh and says, hey, you've done it. Wow, you've done a great job. You're actually battle-hardened. You're, you're war-tested and seasoned. You've done a great job. I commend you. Well done. Great job. Thank you. And now it's time for you to gather up all of the spoils of war, all of the wealth that you have amassed, and it's time for you to go back and share it with your brethren. Now, that's interesting. There were a whole lot of people, men included, who stayed on the east side of the Jordan, we're told, because they needed to be there to defend their families, their homes, their, their children and wives, their crops, all those kinds of things. So a lot of the men needed to stay behind. Joshua says, take all your wealth and share it with them. That's a very important principle for the people of God. Some go, some send, all pray. We're all in this together for the expansion and the expression of the presence of God. Some of them stayed behind, and they were the senders. Some of them went, and they were the doers. But all of them were involved in the presence and the practice of the prayer of God. So they gather up all of their stuff, and as they're about to go, Joshua says, Hey, uh, one more thing, one more thing. He goes all Columbo on them, if you remember Columbo. Hey, one more thing. Don't forget, as you go back across the Jordan, don't forget to love the Lord your God. Now, that's kind of tragic. Why would he have to tell them to love God? Oh, that's right, because we have to be reminded. Don't forget to love the Lord your God and to what? To be faithful to him, to obey his commands, to be faithful because he is faithful. And they say, got that. We totally do. We get it. And so those two and a half tribes that were remaining, they start to head east. And right as they're about to cross the Jordan River, they build this massive altar, this huge altar huge stone-cut altar, and then they cross over. That's interesting. We're not told why they do that. We're not told who told them to do that. We're not told that God told them to do that. They just build this massive, massive altar, and they cross over, and they go back to their lands. And then there's this guy. We don't know who it is. There's just this guy. Don't be that guy. Some guy sees the altar, and he goes, ooh, ooh, gossip, and he runs back to Joshua. Joshua, 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 Joshua. I saw the eastern tribes. They... They built an altar over there. They built an altar, and they're going to sacrifice on it. The text doesn't tell us they were going to sacrifice on it, but this guy begins a failure to communicate. And so what does Joshua do? Whoosh, to war. They've been at war for seven years. That's all they know. When you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. 
And so they've been at war for seven years. Hey, there's a small rumor of something that happened in the east to war, everyone. But finally, cooler heads prevail. Joshua's 100, and he goes, actually, I'm kind of tired of war. Let's investigate. Let's see what's really going on. And so he gathers together a delegation there at Shiloh, 10 of the tribal chiefs, and Phinehas. Now, you and I hear that, and we go, okay, it's some dude with a Hebrew name. Who cares? Well, this is a story. And everyone who hears Phinehas goes, oh, baby, now we're talking. Here's the deal. When you are a reader of the Old Testament and you hear the name Phinehas, it's supposed to, it's supposed to tingle your spine. The apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, fancied himself a Phinehas. He says as much in Philippians 3. What's the deal with Phinehas? Well, for that, sidetrack. You have to understand Numbers 25 to understand why Phinehas is involved in Joshua 22. So this is a part of the scriptures. Bear with me. Numbers 25. Moses has the children of Israel. They're taking laps in the wilderness. And there is a Moabite king named Balak. He's a bad dude. He is a pagan. He worships false gods. His name is Balak. And he does what every false king does. He gets himself a prophet. And the prophet's name is Balaam. Balaam, this is pretty cool. Balaam has a talking donkey. Like if you're going to be a prophet, that's a good place to start. Balaam, prophet, have talking donkey, will travel. And so Balak pays Balaam to go and try to curse the people of Israel. He goes, he tries to curse him, and all that comes out of his mouth is blessing. That was weird. Goes back, says, I'm going to need some more money. Balak says, deal. Here's some more cash. Balaam goes, tries to curse him. He just blesses him. This was so weird. I'm going to need some more money. Balak pays him again. He tries to curse him. All that comes out is blessing. He goes back and goes, I can't do it, but I will take some more cash. Balak says, well, well then we're hosed. We're, we're, we're going to die. We don't know what to do. And Balaam says, hold on a second. Hold on. I'm not going to try to curse them this time. I've got a better idea. I know what I'm going to do. Um, cheerleaders. Like for seriouses. He gets a bunch of their Midianite Moabite priestesses, cultic prostitutes, dresses them up real skimpy, and he sends them over to Israel, and they begin to corrupt and to rah, 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 and lead the men in corrupt and corroded worship of Yahweh. And it works. The men are like, oh, Moabite women are in fuego. And they begin to depart in droves and start doing gross, detestable things before the Lord, their God. And God doesn't like it because he is faithful. And his people are not responding faithfully. And so God sends a plague, the words literally, and the angel of death. And people begin to just drop by the thousands. And then God comes to Moses and says, hey, round up all of the leaders execute them in broad daylight and hang them in the sun so that everyone will know that I am a holy God. Moses does it. And as the people are weeping and crying about the plague that's killing people and the, you know, the new chieftains that are all swinging in the wind, one guy, his name is Zimri, one guy grabs one of these Moabite priestesses and instead of praying to Yahweh, he takes her into his tent for a little Canaanite worship practice, if you follow my meaning. Phinehas sees this, sees this about to happen, grabs his spear, follows him into the tent, and drives it through both of them. That's what I'm talking about. And God says, now that's what I'm talking about. Phinehas was zealous for my name, and so God stops the plague right there. Stabs through both of them, does Phinehas. God stops the plague, and still 24,000 of the people died. It was a big deal. Phinehas removes his spear. He goes back to his priestly duties because he's the son of Eleazar the priest. Eleazar is the son of Aaron. 
So this is a really big deal. So now fast forward back to Joshua chapter 22. Here are all the elders and all the people gathered. Joshua sends a delegation, those 10 tribal chiefs, and Phinehas. When you're going to send Phinehas to investigate a failure to communicate, it's kind of like sending an F-16 to shoot down a weather balloon. Too soon? Sorry. Okay. It was a really big deal. And so the eastern two and a half tribes are all camped over there, and they see Phinehas coming, and he's tapping his spear like, oh, I've got some stabbing to do. And they confront the two and a half tribes and go, what is this evil you have done? Do you not just remember what we just talked about? God is faithful. Will we not be faithful? Why have you done this horrible, egregious thing of building a memorial? Why are you going to sacrifice here? And the two and a half tribes go, whoa, 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 far be it from us. Yahweh, who is God, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. And they invoke him three times to say, we would never do that. We're not doing that. God is judge. He is witness. If we're lying, may he strike us all dead. By the way, that's pretty bold. They said, our intention was never to sacrifice here. This was to be a memorial to remind you guys on the west side, because the altar is on the west side, that we are a part of the Messianic community as well. We are the covenant people as well. We were afraid that in subsequent years, your children's children would forget that our children's children had part in Yahweh. And that's a good principle for us to be reminded of as a church. There might be a street that separates our churches, or there might be an ocean that separates our churches, but it is a big tent. We are Yahweh's people, and we love those people through space and time. We thought, they say, y'all were going to forget about us, and so we built this as a memorial. We saw Joshua build one in the exact same spot. Benihah says, so, like, so, so no stabbing then. No, no stabbing. Okay. So that's over. They return back to Shiloh. They tell Joshua, and Joshua says, great. And the land has rest. God is faithful. Will Israel respond in faithfulness? Instance number one, yes. And then we get chapter 23. We're going to walk through this very briefly. Joshua, beginning in chapter 23. Follow along. A long time afterward, probably some 10 years after that event, time has passed. What's happened in those 10 years? Well, a lot. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But 10 years has passed. Joshua is 110. He's an old, old man. What we're going to get from Joshua is two more speeches, two more sermons from a really old guy who's going to finish well. And so I love these two chapters. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges and its officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, to which they're going, (laughs) yeah, God said you were old 10 years ago. Now you sound like a slinky going down the stairs, bruh. I mean, he's 110, and he says, hey, I'm old, and they're going, Yeah, we we got that. We see that. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has brought for you. Behold, I have allotted you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. It's an exhortation. Hey, God's done so much. God's going to continue. And there is still much for you to do. God's done it. Go do it. He has done it. He will continue to do it. So trust that and go do it. The the battle is won. Now go fight. 
And that's how this life often works. Now we're going to get an interesting little pivot here in verse 6. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. You might remember, but it's been a long time. Back in September when we started the book of Joshua, Six different times God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. And here, 110 years into his life, this man of God simply repeats and reiterates God's word to God's people. Now that's a good model. What does he tell them? Be strong and courageous. After 22 chapters of narrative about God, by God, now we finally get an imperative. Now we finally get an exhortation. This is the Romans 12.1 moment for those of you who are familiar with the book of Romans. Paul gives 11 chapters of doctrine, no instruction, just explanation of who God is, what he's like, what he has done. Therefore, offer your bodies in Romans 12.1. Joshua 23.6 is that therefore moment. In view of all that God is and all that he has done, all that he has loved you, be strong and courageous. Love the Lord your God. This is that moment. Be strong and courageous, verse 6. Verse 7, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, nor make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. He's going, you guys remember in chapter 10, when we were fighting against the Southern Coalition and the munitions dump of heaven opened up and it killed everybody and all you had to stand there, do was stand there and not get hit? God did all that. And by the way, he hasn't changed. He still wants to fight for you. So go do it. He is faithful. Will you be faithful as well? Verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Isn't that interesting? That's the directive, to love God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. Ow! I'd kind of rather have the thorn in my side, candidly. But no, no. Here's the deal. Obedience and faithfulness to God means he is with you. Disobedience means you are taken from his presence. You are no longer suitable for the habitat that he has given. So don't do it. It's a crucifixion of the intellect, we might say. Keep that in mind. Until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I love that expression. Since Genesis 3, when death entered into the cosmos, the way of all the earth is death. Joshua knows that he became a part of something that predated him, and he is departing from something that is continuing to go on after him. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. God is faithful. How will you respond, Israel? God is faithful. How will you respond, Israel? But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off the good land that the Lord your God has given you. In other words, God is faithful and he has promised. He's faithful in grace 
He is faithful in justice. If you disobey, then you do force his hand. Make no mistake. And then verse 16, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. So that's speech number two. Chapter 22, they're at Shiloh. He dispatches a delegation to the Jordan River. They come back to Shiloh. Still at Shiloh, he gathers the elders and the tribal chiefs. God is faithful. Will you be faithful as well? Which takes us now into chapter 24. Now, chapter 24, we're not going to read the first half because it's a review. Chapter 24, 1 to 13, Joshua moves the entire nation, not just the leaders, not just a delegation. He moves them all up to Shechem. Shechem is a really big deal. Shechem is a really, really, really big deal. Shechem is the geographic center of Israel. It's only a few miles north of Shiloh. It's close, but it is the geographic center of all Israel. Shechem is the place where in Genesis 12, God makes the covenant with Abram. I will give you land, habitat for us to dwell, and seed, meaning offspring and children and generations, and blessing. He does that with Abram at Shechem. In Genesis 35, when Jacob comes back from the land of Laban working for his uncle, Shechem is where Jacob buries all of his idols. He had brought back all of these idols from Uncle Laban and all of his wives. He brings them all back and realizes, oh, this is Yahweh territory. This is not okay. And he buries all of those there. Shechem is where in Joshua 8, Joshua marches all of the tribes of Israel to the two mountains that flank Shechem, Gerizim in the, in the north and Ebal in the south. And they pronounce the blessings from Deuteronomy and the curses from Deuteronomy. And Shechem is the place where Joshua writes on a stone, Deuteronomy 5 through 26, and he sets it up and it sits there. Shechem is a really, really big deal. Not only that, Joshua is now going to reiterate. He's going to give them what's called a suzerain vassal treaty. Don't worry about the, all the nerdy stuff about that. He's going to give them a treaty, which was very, very, very common. God speaks to the people in ways they can contextually understand. It works like this. A conquering king says, I just whipped you. Here are the terms of your surrender so that I don't kill you. I am your king. Here's my responsibilities. I will provide protection for you. I will provide boundaries. I will provide borders. I will give these things, and I'll keep the other nations off of you. But I conquered you. Here's your responsibilities. You have to pay me tribute. You have to give me fealty and loyalty. Fight for nobody else. Align yourselves with nobody else, or else I'll come and destroy you. Now, here's a copy for me. I'm going to take that back to my empire headquarters. Here's a copy for you. You keep that here in the land. Now, that's why it's such a big deal when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. That's why he writes them on ten stones, or on two tablets, sorry, two tablets. It's not that God's finger is so big he couldn't fit all ten on one. No, 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 no. All ten are written on one, and there's a second copy. All ten are written on the second copy. What God is telling them, I'm not going to go back and leave you with one copy. Put both copies in the box because I am your king and I love you and I am going to be with you always. It is one of the first flickers of God with us, Emmanuel. Both copies of his covenant with us travel with his people. That's what Joshua is now going to reiterate. He's going to give the people their Toledo. A Toledo is a Hebrew history lesson. It's a lore. It's a reminder of who they are and what they have been through. And so in chapter 24, Joshua reminds them, our God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Why is that a big deal? Because Joshua says, Abram was an idolater. The rabbis in the Midrash say that Abram's father, Terah, 
manufactured idols. That was his job. He made idols. And God called Abram out of that and brought him into a good land, a habitat where God and man could dwell together. And then he gave him Isaac. Against all hope, he gave him Isaac. And to Isaac, he gave Jacob and Esau. And even to Esau, he gave the land of the east. And to Jacob, he gave 12 tribes. And they were wonderful sons. And then they went down into Egypt. And he gives the story of bondage and slavery and death, but how God sent a savior named Moses to rescue them out of slavery, out of bondage, out of death. And he led them through death of the Red Sea. And then he talks about the wilderness wanderings. 40 years to go 11 miles, and now God has brought you into this good land, and he has conquered it, and he has given it to you. God is faithful. How will you respond? So let's pick up at the end of this book, Joshua 24, beginning in verse 14. Now, therefore, here's the exhortation, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord, because your forefathers were serving the gods of Egypt, and even before then, Abram was serving the gods from beyond the river, that's the Euphrates, in what is today Iraq, or the Chaldeans. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites. What? Wait, wait, wait. That means Joshua knows. Some of them have walked from Shiloh to Shechem, clinking of little idols in their pockets. I mean, seriously, it's unbelievable if it wasn't just so believable and mirror-facing and convicting. Now, we're 21st century people. We think, you're carrying around little statues, little idols? That's so silly. I promise you, if they knew the things that we carried around in place of God, they would laugh. We do the exact same things, maybe not little statuettes, but other little things that we trust to make us happy, to make us secure, to make us strong, to make us fulfilled. It's very convicting. Put away those things, the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This did not seem like a negotiation in Joshua's house. Can I just preach and ramble for one moment? I hear this so often. Parents making decisions about church because their children are happy. That is not the Joshua model of family leadership when it comes to church. Joshua is saying, for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. Now, by the way, we're not saying this is the only church you can do that. Please, we're just saying, make the decision. Your children need that from you and grandparents and aunts and uncles and volunteer ministry leaders and elders and pastors. We make those decisions. I don't think anybody in Joshua's house went, yeah, I don't know, Joshua. I think I'm going to go to the, the youth ministry of the Canaanite gods because they have wild parties. I don't think anyone was going to say that. Joshua had seen too much. He knew God too well to ever even imagine his family or his household departing. So it's a familiar verse. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, perhaps your parents, or you have that on a needlepoint somewhere in your hallway in your home. Good for you. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us out and our, and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and those great signs in our sight preserved us in all the way that we went and all along and along all the peoples throughout whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Like, no, Joshua, we get you. We're with you. We're following your lead all the way. But Joshua, who was old, but not blind and not deaf and not dumb, he said, 
You're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you And having done you good, after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, 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 for real. We will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, so let it be written, so let it be done. You have voiced your reaffirmation, your rearticulation of the covenant. You're now invoking blessing. You're now invoking curse, is what he essentially says. So Joshua said to the people, verse 22, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. I can hear them clinking in your pockets. Put them away. They've still got them with them, some of them. And incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth, that's the oak tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. He reseals, rearticulates, reaffirms the covenant with God, and then he dispatches them. And then the book of Joshua is going to come to a conclusion. You might remember this back from September, the book of Joshua, we said, opens with a wedding of sorts. There's a union. There's a, there's a, a covenant forging between, between God and his people. It's like a wedding, and it's going to end with three funerals. Check this out. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. That's his resume. He was the servant of the Lord, and that's pretty great. All he did was love God, serve God. Full stop. Easy enough. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Serah, which means abundant provision, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the Mount of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. I love that. What a legacy. Israel maintained their faithfulness so long as Joshua was alive and so long as any of the people that Joshua led were alive. Now that's pretty good. And even that was the most he could muster, tragically. If you just turn about a page and a half over, you start to read the book of Judges, you see that it goes south in a hurry. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, Moses had commanded that, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. That's in the hill country of Ephraim. All three of these are going to end up being in Ephraim, right in the center of the country. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gibeah in the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Three funerals. Three different guys who representatively had followed God faithfully because their God was faithful, who had lived in foreign lands, exposed to foreign gods, affected by foreign idolatrous practices, and yet they died faithfully in the land that God had promised them. So it's fitting that this book ends with three funerals. So how do we apply this to our lives? Oh my goodness, three chapters of narrative. What are we supposed to do with this? As a reminder, God is our salvation. Not a practice, not a protocol, not a program. It's a person. God is our salvation. That's what Joshua means. So I just want to give you two quick 
principles or applications. Number one goes like this, very practical for all of us, you know, just for the rest of your lives. That's all. It works like this. Love, think, do. That's the program of Scripture. That's the recipe of Scripture. Love, think, do. It's not always how we tend to react reflexively, but it is the model and the plan and the path of Scripture. Love, think, do. Near the very end of his life, Moses is about to die, and he gives his people that he's leading Deuteronomy. It's a summary and a summation of the previous four books. Just like Joshua at the end of his life gives a mini Deuteronomy, he got that from Moses. Moses summarizes the first four books in Deuteronomy, and in the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses gives a very familiar, famous passage we call the Shema. And it goes like this. Perhaps you've heard it, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Is that a command? Or is it a promise? I would contend it is both. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I commend you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. It's what Moses leaves for his people. Love God. That's what Augustine would say and 1,700 years ago, love God, do as you please. Love, think, do. That's why our Bibles are so helpful. They read us more than we read them. Based on who God is, we love him, period. Now, that's a big deal that we all need to hear and understand and apply to our lives and then change. Most of us, candidly, experience and express love based on how we feel because that's the storyline of every pop song and bad movie. But love, hear this, love is a choice, a decision of the will based on what is true. And then our feelings line up and follow our thinking. This is the dignity that God gives. I hear this so frequently. I hear this all the time in pastoral counseling contexts. I just don't feel like loving my spouse anymore. To which I say very pastorally, very counselor-wise, stop it! It's not helpful. But I say that. Because they just don't feel, but they've gotten their whole life inverted and inside out. No, 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 no. Love is a choice. We choose to love our spouse because of what is true, because of what God has done to give us the gracious gift of a spouse. And then trust that God will touch our hearts so that our feelings then begin to follow. Feelings are good servants. They are terrible masters. God is faithful. Will we respond? but I don't feel like it. That's not the highest level of authority in your life. It mustn't be. You are a human created in the image of God. Love is a well-reasoned concern for another, wanting the other person's highest possible good, even above your own. We love God because it's the only logical thing to do in response to who he is, what he's like, what he's done, and who we are because of what he says then out of that experience and expression, we think and we feel rightly, and then we begin to do what we ought because we love him, not simply because we should. And so what happens when we get our lives ordered around who God is, increasingly what we ought to do actually becomes what we want to do. And we are ever increasingly transformed into the image of our Lord and Savior and big brother, Jesus. That was his life. Second point, very quickly, goes like this. Time will tell. 
Time will tell. Time is always the test. Our struggle is not that our enemy rings our front doorbell and tries to get us to sin. If that happens, would you please FaceTime me? If you're sitting there watching golf this afternoon and the doorbell rings and you open it and there he is, the father of lies, with horns and a cape and a pitchfork and cloven hoof and bad knees and he goes, blah, sin. Would you please put me on? I want to see that. Because that's like never how it happens. What happens is that time passes and your awe leaks, your faithfulness leaks, your devotion drips, and it only takes a day or two or an hour or three. And we're leaky vessels, are we not? Time is our test. We are, in fact, from the future because of what Christ has done in the past, but we have to live in the present. So how do we actually and actively do that? I mean, just, just think of it like we began this morning. If only there was a place where God and man could dwell together. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. And by the way, this is why we have weekly corporate worship on a Sunday, to proclaim that Jesus is alive and to encourage and exhort one another. This is why we have life groups and Bible studies and accountability groups and podcasts and BSFs and men's groups and so forth and so on, to help us be bumpered back into fellowship because time passes and we have this gravity of depravity that as the second hand ticks by, so too does our focus and our devotion. And so these things are never intended to accomplish or achieve anything for us, but to put us in a position and a posture in which our devotion and our focus and our attentiveness and our affection is rightly oriented around who God is. All you gotta do, is turn, again, a page and a half from the book of Joshua into the book of Judges, and you see that time had told. They were faithless almost immediately because one generation failed to properly teach the following generation of the faithfulness of God and how to properly pass the time of life consistently. This is one of the reasons Tiffany's going to lead a group starting this Tuesday. It is because we tend as a species in the 21st century to cope with the passage of time, with flickering pixels on a screen, and we don't know what else to do, and so we're addicted. The ancient Israelites under Joshua would have snickered at our idolatrous addiction to screens, if I may be so bold. We must not be so tethered to them. I'm not saying we should get rid of all of them entirely. Please no. But let us think rightly about who God is and what he's done. God is our salvation. The final question of the book of Joshua is because God is faithful, will Israel respond in faithfulness? That's the actual theme of the entire Bible. And so the failure of the covenant community of Israel that we see throughout the period of Judges in the very next book is made only worse as they institute and implement kings. Saul, David, Solomon. After Solomon, the monarchy splits, and it just goes from bad to worse to worse until you literally have kings of Israel sacrificing their children to pagan gods in the fire. So that finally God says, I told you I would do this. He forcibly, literally removes the 12 tribes of Israel from the promised habitat that he gave to them. He removes them from the land. It's a death sentence, a separation. And candidly, when you read the Old Testament, you're left, to put it lightly, wanting more. Won't anybody ever be faithful to God? He's so good. He's so faithful. Can't Israel ever be faithful to God? And then there's 400 years of silence. And then... You go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. 
And all four gospel accounts are effectively shouting at you, not just giving you Bible stories, not just giving you devotional material. They're exploding off the page going, Jesus is faithful. Don't you see? He is Israel. He is the Son of God. And in every thought, word, deed, ever, 24-7, he was faithful. Don't you get it? Look, he was persecuted. He was flogged. He was spat upon. He was lied about. He was falsely accused. He was hungry in the wilderness. And in every way, this Israel, true Israel, named Yeshua, God is our salvation. In every way, he was faithful. All the time, always. He chose each day, each hour, each minute, each second in thought, word, and deed, whom he would serve, his Father in heaven, who was faithful. So please, please hear me. If all you ever hear from the book of Joshua is that condemning, accusing needlepoint on your parents' hallway that says, choose this day whom you will serve, then you've missed the point of Joshua. Because you can't, and you haven't, and you won't. Perhaps there was that moment in the seventh grade when you went to church camp and you chose that day whom you would serve. And then by the time school started, you were back to who you are. You can't because time is our enemy. But there is one who is true Israel who has chosen in every thought, word, and deed his entire life. And here's the good news of the gospel. He is our dwelling. Wouldn't it be great if there was a place where God and man could dwell perfectly? Yes, and it's a person. It's not a place. It's Jesus. He is our dwelling, God with us. That's why the gospel is such good news. The great story, the awesome announcement about what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Jesus is the habitat for God and man to dwell together here and now and for all eternity. He is the point. That's what it means to be in Christ. God looks at his son, Jesus, true Israel, and he sees us, if you will, dwelling in the land of his son, Jesus. Do you believe? Are you persuaded? That's the book of Joshua. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. May it be a light to our feet and a mirror to our face that perhaps you will convict any here this morning that are simply trying to eke out a life in their own strength and will and knowledge and winsomeness and giftedness. Father, they would simply turn their eyes toward Jesus and run to him as refuge. They would seek refuge from you in you. They would step out of darkness and death into light and life and dwell with you now as well as for all eternity. And for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of the glory and the greatness and the grandeur of the gospel of what you have done and that we would live like that is true now, not because we're so awesome that we have to try harder to be better, but that we are dwelling in Christ and so we are unleashed and freed to be your image walking around in this world, expressing and expanding your boundaries and borders, because that's your plan. And even so, we say, Father, we sure like to see Jesus. And so until that time, would you equip us with your word, with your spirit, as your people, to pass the time for your sake and for your glory, because you alone are worth that. And we pray these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.